Hi, and welcome to The Science of Storytelling, the podcast that explores the most unique and engaging content collaborations between publishers and advertisers. I'm Jared Grimm. This week on the show, we're chatting with Beckley Mason, Senior Director at Bleacher Report. Beckley first started writing about sports when he was coaching high school basketball, but since then, he's contributed to sites like The New York Times and ESPN, and now runs the Bleacher Report's branded content operation. His team's recent campaign, Style Stories, saw Bleacher Report connect with JCPenney to tell the story of NBA up-and-comers over the course of their first year as professionals. We talked to Beckley about using fashion to express yourself, what it takes to collaborate with NBA influencers, and why a jump shot from Joel Embiid means more than a jump shot from Tim Duncan. Enjoy the show. Beckley, welcome to the program. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for coming in. So I thought I would uh, give some context to our listeners. And okay. If you could give a little background on yourself and a little bit about your career path to get to where you are today. Sure. So I've been at Bleacher Report um, a little under three years. I came over to kind of launch in earnest our branded content operation. But I got into media actually just on the on the journalism side. I was kind of um, coaching high school basketball and doing odd jobs and started a, a basketball blog that ended up getting picked up um, and started you know being linked out from ESPN and eventually got got hired uh, to write about the NBA, blog about the NBA at True Hoop, which was the national NBA um, blog at ESPN, and from there. Um, Got to write some for the New York Times. Uh, Howard Beck, who's actually now at Bleacher Report, kind of our lead NBA voice, put me on there. And um, was having a great time doing that and, and just realized that writing itself was probably a little bit more solitary than, uh, you know, was going to make me happy over the course of, you know, 40 years or whatever of working, hopefully less. Um <laughs> And, uh, and so I wanted to find something that was a little more collaborative, a little more team driven. Um, I, I had a hard time imagining myself interviewing 23 year olds, um, when I was 50. And, uh, so got into marketing, um, and kind of at a small agency. And from there, just sort of worked my way to a couple different places before coming to Bleacher Report where we've really had the opportunity to kind of build something from the ground up, which has been hugely rewarding, but also very challenging. Yeah. So high school basketball coach. Yeah. Blogger, reporter. Yeah. I actually, and, uh, in, in D.C., I coached a kid um, who transferred to our school. I was coaching at Sidwell Friends, who is now in the NBA, Josh Hart, on the, on the Lakers. And pretty amazing to see to think back at like what that, what he was like as a 15 year old kind of like struggling to find his way for a couple of years in, in high school to like, you know, national college player of the year. And now in the NBA, it's, uh, it's amazing how much can happen in, you know, four or five years. Yeah. And you've had a lot of roles, but it seems like there is, you know, something that's consistent across there. You've been a basketball fan your whole life. Yeah. I really like basketball. Loved it growing up playing, loved coaching, loved writing about it. Um, it's definitely, I'm lucky that I still get to, you know, if I'm on Twitter, just like indulging in weird NBA takes, that's part of my job. So you got to have that context. Yeah. So it's uh, important work for me. And you had Bleacher Report. So can you talk a little bit about Bleacher Report, what it is, how it started? 
Yeah, Bleacher Report began as sort of like an open platform. I mean, most people probably know this, but an open platform uh, for people to write who didn't have um, who didn't have a community really to to do that and to find news and conversation about the teams that they care about. And this was sort of early days of um, sports blogs where. You know, ESPN and, and other national sports companies would cover the major teams that would drive the most views. Um, but if you were a displaced college kid, like our founder was, who's from the Bay Area, was going to school in Notre Dame, there wasn't really uh, a way for him to, like, find the Warriors takes he wanted. Uh, this is before the Warriors were good and everybody wrote about them. Uh, so he started that, and I think over time, it's evolved kind of as technology and, and consumer habits have evolved. They've done a really nice job of being super aggressive, um, never being afraid to be kind of like the first mover to go all in on a new platform or a new consumer experience. And so over time, it's evolved to, you know, I think they were the first to have a sports app that customized your experience against teams. Now ESPN, the score, a lot of... Uh, Sports brands have that, you know, they were the first to really go all in on um, social as a way of not just linking, getting people to click through to articles, but actually just giving them a cool experience right in their social feed. And then, um, you know, now we're having been uh, purchased by Turner in 2012, you know, we have UEFA rights, we have NBA rights, we have um, some MLB and PGA rights, and that allows us to kind of have the institutional um, backing and rights to talk about the sports themselves, show the actual clips, the highlights, but still maintain that sort of disruptive startup perspective on how we do that, which... I think it's pretty unique because anyone else who kind of has our voice or spin on things or wants to be in that space um, doesn't have Turner behind them. And anyone who's huge, it, it just sounds and feels weird if they try to now sound like a kid or sound like that, you know, the 23 year olds we have writing our tweets yeah. um, because it's not genuine. So I think we're in a really good spot. Um, sports are, you know, will always be something that is uh, breaking news. You know, everything that happens on the court or every every down is an occasion to talk about it, uh, which makes it a great social-friendly um, topic to build, you know, media business around. Yeah, what do you think it is about sports that can attract so many people? I mean, people get very opinionated about it. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of strong emotion tied mm -hmm. to it. What is it about sport? that makes that different than, let's say, you know, general lifestyle or even news? Well, certainly identity and community are core to this the sports fan experience. But I think also Bleacher Report is a reflection and the content we do is a reflection of sport is also where all these other cultural um, interests intersect. So I think the NBA is probably the cultural center of gravity for young people in America, like, period. It's where, you know, LeBron is going to be the guy who premieres Kendrick Lamar's next album on his Instagram. It's where Kaepernick is leading, you know, the political conversation. Um, and those sorts of uh, intersections allows, allow you to kind of have the conversation of your life and of your experience through something that is 
also just objectively fun and, and beautiful, which is the games themselves. So I think, you know, beyond the kind of uh, longstanding role of sports as a builder of identity of a place where people find community, it's also evolved into a place where, not that this wasn't the case with, you know, Ali and um, different figures over time, but where it's really kind of a melting pot of hot topics and interests throughout youth culture. So I think that that's the approach we try to take is if you look at your if you look at your feed, you know, it's not a channel like ESPN where you're only getting sports. Um, your feed is a combination of all your different interests. And we want to reflect those interests um, in the sports content that we create. Yeah. And it not only attracts a lot of viewers, a lot of readers, but it's starting to attract advertisers as well and brands that want to be associated with that. So mm-hmm. let's jump into... You ran a program, uh, Bleacher Report, with J.C. Penny. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure when you were just starting your journalism career, this is exactly what you thought you were going to do, right? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, give us give us uh, an overview of the program. Okay. Uh, for those that haven't seen it yet. Great. So J.C. Penny um, came to us to help them reach and engage um, young men, which is what we do, I think, better than anybody uh, on a mass scale. And uh, J.C. Penny, you know, the, the kind of uh, weigh-in that we found with them was that uh, our audience loves athletes who express themselves. Um, they love athletes who stand for something, who have passions off the court. That's why, um, you know, a, a jump shot from Joel Embiid means more than a jump shot from, you know, Tim Duncan, because not because Duncan isn't a greater player, he's like one of the greatest ever, but Embiid's off-court life gives everything he does more resonance on the court. So when we're thinking of um, this idea, obviously fashion is one of the ways that you express yourselves. So our idea here was that we were going to use fashion um, and use JC, the JCPenney products in order to allow these athletes to express themselves and for our audience to see them doing that uh, in a way that they hadn't before. And we were lucky, you know, JCPenney brought a bunch of athletes to the table that they had created partnerships with. So then it was on us to understand those guys, find out what's interesting about them, what they're passionate about, and then put them in a position where they can show that off. So JCPenney had agreements or partnerships already in place with yep. some athletes, and they were be able to bring that into the fold? Yeah, exactly. So when these guys got drafted... Um, one of the programs that JCPenney runs um, and has run for a few years is outfitting them in custom suits for the draft um, when they're going to get, I mean, there's like basically a feeding frenzy for these guys because there's going to be so many photo ops. Um, they all want to wear something cool. And so JCPenney signs a number of guys every year. Um, and then, you know, there's certain obligations they have. And luckily this year, one of them was you got to be, you got to work with Bleacher Report, basically. Um, so we got a bunch of really talented guys, um, Jaron Jackson, Marvin Bagley, who um, we were really thrilled to work with. And, you know, I think one of our, one of the better things we did all year uh, in 2018 was, was with him. He's just a really engaged, talented young guy. And I think it's really cool that these partnerships, when you have a brand 
like a JC Penny, yeah. a publisher, and then you're bringing another element, which is athletes, which are a brand of their own. Sure. I imagine yeah. that can't be the easiest <laughs> organizing. Like, yeah. Each of these groups have their own plans, their own requirements. What yeah. was it like trying to tie three different entities together like that and then to be able to produce it? Yeah, well, you know, of course, JC Penny also has their own agencies yeah. that they work with. Um, these athletes have their agents. They also uh, can be tied to sort of third-party production companies. Um, so I think the the main thing is having something that people are actually excited to do. Um, <laughs> that's like you have something that, that everyone sort of can get on board with. That's great. But then uh, over-communicating and um, making sure that uh, you have an idea that you can actually execute. I think a lot of times you, when you get into trying to serve like five different camps, you basically kind of have like a Franken idea mm -hmm. in which it's not a coherent sort of end product. And if you keep it really simple on something that you know the athlete, because at the end of the day, it's all about the talent in yeah. these um in these situations and making sure the talent is engaged and excited because that's going to come through and how the brand gets messaged is going to come through in, in our audience experience and it's going to make you know, this person want to work with us again and, and want to continue and deepen their partnership with the brand, which is a, it's a value to everybody. So moving from there into how the industry is moving. So this is mm -hmm. branded content. You started yeah. out, you know, blogging and reporting and writing. Uh, Branded content is somewhat newer. Let's say like the last five years has become more prominent as a way that different publishers monetize. Mm -hmm. uh, where do you see branded content fitting in in the in the grand scheme of publishing, whether mm -hmm. that's a Bleacher Report or, or the, the industry on a wider perspective? Yeah, I think um, the interesting thing about branded content is that it's a different sort of like social contract with your audience. Like advertising, I think there's a appetite to sort of be annoyed or even like you know they're kind of trying to trick you. Mm -hmm. That's like part of the thing. And, yeah. and you watch a commercial and you're like, yeah, X brand, like I don't really know if this claim is true or not, but like I get your point and, uh, you know, message received. With, with um, branded content, you you have a, a very different connection to your audience because you're trading on the connection that your editorial team has created with this audience. So that's like a very sacred thing that you don't want to um, ruin because every piece of content you create is in some way a reflection on them. And, and the way we try to think about it is, and as a news publisher, is that we, you need to provide value to the audience in some way. Um, it can't just be to tell them something. It has to be to tell them something or show them something that they didn't know, piece of information that they can use, a insight into an athlete's life that uh, changes their perspective of them. Um, those sorts of things allow us to uh, kind of credibly put this in front of them. And I think that's where the challenge is for branded content more broadly is that it can become we're just making ads and publishing them rather than giving something to our audience, which is what the brand, in my opinion, should want is to give something to their audience, to give, to, you know, to be of value. That's like 
kind of the, the also their proposition, right, with uh, their products, and to allow space to do that. Um, I think it's going to be interesting over time to see how social platforms get regulated in this regard. A, a lot of what we do is calls with our lawyers to understand what's in bounds and what isn't because sort of the pace of innovation um, on platforms versus the pace of legal precedent yeah. is like totally out of whack. So you need to um, try to stay ahead of things. And if, you know, if Instagram ends up kind of like turning off the faucet the way that Facebook did with branded content, you know, it's going to change the economics of the industry. And I think that at this point, if you aren't at like significant scale and sort of have achieved uh, escape velocity on these social platforms, it's going to be really hard to build a branded content business once that screw gets tighter and tighter. Yeah. Whereas we have sort of like an elite editorial social publishing group that is going to keep us ahead of everyone and gives my team the space and license to drive as much revenue as we can. Yeah, I think it's an interesting time. I would say publishing industry tends to pivot together a mm -hmm. lot of times. So, you know, pivot to social, then a pivot to video. And now they're talking about it being like a pivot to paid. So can you get your readers, your viewers to pay you for your content, whether that's through a paywall or subscription? Mm -hmm. Has uh, Bleacher Report looked at any of those types of models where instead of monetizing purely through, let's say, advertising, mm -hmm. looking at, is this content we're creating so valuable that our audience is willing to pay us for it? Well, we have, uh, as we're owned by Turner and now AT&T, um, our super corporate overlords in this sort of like yeah. Russian nesting doll of corporations <laughs> we're in. Um, you know, AT&T, uh, we bring our MBA and UEFA rights. AT&T and DirecTV have these NFL rights. So in a way, we're already monetizing through paid, very specific pieces of content that we have, our broadcasts, um, our highlights that we can, that basically no one else can monetize uh, in the same way. And so I think that's one piece of it. I think we're more looking, I don't, I don't think we're expecting people to suddenly want to pay for things that they can get for free on social network from us or from our competitors. I think we're looking more at things like e-commerce, events, elevated experiences that we can give to our audience um, beyond the things we publish in our app or in our um, on our social feeds. That is a huge growth territory. We did last year, I think we did four or five events where we were able to bring in a number of sponsors to each one. Um, down the road, those events, you know, can be ticketed and can you, you can, you look at uh, a business like Complex that's really built around ComplexCon at this point. They license some of their stuff, but really sort of the big ticket item every year and what everything builds towards is this massive kind of fan experience. Um, and I think there's a lot to be learned from that, right? Like they build credibility as a voice about streetwear and about um, this cultural space. And then they realize that like one way you can make a ton of money doing that is getting tons of people in LA to come to this event. So we're looking at that and thinking about, okay, we have this property, we have the IP of, it's called NBA All-Star. Mm -hmm. How do we dimensionalize the way that we earn revenue around that, 
not just through content, but through other ways of thinking of that experience. And I'm really, uh, really stoked about a couple of e-commerce projects that I'm working with that team on to create the content around that uh, I think are going to blow up. And um, so we're looking at, you know, we're looking at competitors, we're looking at our own space and thinking about what audience interests are we not serving that if we serve them, we can capitalize and open new revenue streams yeah. for. Yeah. And if you look backwards, you know, for you, eight years, yeah. you probably didn't know this is where you were going to be today. Or this yeah, I don't is think this role this... existed when yeah. I graduated uh, college, for sure. And even the way that we look at how people, like, pay attention to sport, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, Amazon has rights to some sports stuff. Twitter has rights. You never would have thought that that was a thing 10 years ago. Sure. Um, moving forward 10 years, I think it's interesting, Bleacher Report... What I remember kind of about the story was this idea that it is, it's the bleacher report, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's people that maybe don't have a, a position as a staff writer, uh, but they're able to share their experience of a yeah. game, right? So looking forward 10 years, we all have a pretty high definition camera in our pocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is the consumption of live sport and events look like over the coming years in your opinion? Well, I think uh, live sports are going to be streamed. I think people are going to get used to watching live sports not on a TV. I think that's a big, like, I still almost always watch on the biggest screen I can. I think that habit is going to evolve as young people who have grown up with tablets in their hands uh, sitting at the dinner table, which drives me nuts. Please, parents, don't do that. Um, But... uh, are going to be fine watching NBA action, watching a a whole NFL game on their tablet while they're doing a number of other things, Uh, which is a behavior that sort of the core sports audience uh, between 30 and 60 is not doing right now, right? So I think just like from a technology point of view, that is going to change. I also think there's going to become differentiation of streams. So there's probably going to be and you've seen this even now with um, some broadcasters. Like we do this during March Madness, you can watch uh, the game itself, but then you can also watch the Duke stream. You can watch the Syracuse stream, and you get the Duke announcers or the Syracuse announcers. I think that is going to continue to evolve into increasingly specialized experiences, even within the game itself. Um, and then I think. There's going to, the teams that do a really good job and the sports franchises that do a really good job of not just think, of thinking past the gate and past the broadcast into how they grow their community are going to succeed. I think it's similar to newspapers in a way where I think um, newspapers misunderstood their value proposition, which was that we give you content and then we get advertising, where it was really like you you become a the community of people who all read the newspaper and all had something to talk about. Newspapers failed to connect them and to invest in community and instead invested in how they can get the most out of every eyeball that they get. And I think the sports teams that, like um, the Atlanta uh, MLS team is a great example of, of a team that is built around super fans and community events and turning super fans into influencers and like snowballing that into uh, a community big enough to fill out, um, you know, a giant stadium where the Super Bowl is going to be played. 
dozens of times a year. So I think in terms of franchises, those that understand how to work outside of broadcast and the gate are going to, it's going to be essentially mandatory in order to make money beyond kind of the largesse of these giant contracts that they have. So going back to Bleacher Report, amassing these big audiences that fall in love with you know, the stories that you guys are telling. How do you prove to that brand, let's say JCPenney, that it's good? Hmm. Yeah, taste is a, uh, it's a tricky one. <laughs> um, you know, I think the end of the day, engagement is sort of the metric that we really want to be judged by as much as, as much as anything. Like what is getting people to not just view the content, but do something with it, tell their friends about it share it, like it, that sort of stuff. Um, whether it's good is, I think, like, the reason that CMOs are usually only around for, like, two years at a time. It's just hard. You know, it's always subjective on some level. I think what we did with them, you know, Marvin uh, creating music videos um, that are really, you know, personal and, and look amazing. I think that if you... What we want to remind our clients is at the end of a project, like, if you started the year and you and JC Penney said, okay, this year we're going to release two original tracks with the number two overall pick, um, where he's going to be wearing JC Penney clothes and he's going to be like doing it on our behalf and it'll be published by the biggest social media, um, force in sports. Like that sentence is great. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that. And you have to always come back to, there's always ways to, because the metrics on social are so, um, sort of rudimentary yeah. compared to, the way that you can source attribution through TV and then, you know, there's 50 years of how to do that. And every couple years in social media, everything sort of reboots and you have to rethink about how that works. So for us, engagement, um, the sheer quality of the content, and then, you know, you can go through and you can judge sentiment. And we did that a lot with JC Penny was going through and, and seeing people, just loving it and, and, and writing about that. And then the other thing you can do on social that we, you know, want to see is like when we, when we dropped the first music video, it was like a couple of days before the draft. So it was a great time to do, it's like when there's this huge appetite to discover things about these new players. So that first one came out and it immediately became a topic of discussion on a number of different uh, publications of like, where does Marvin rank? in the pantheon of best NBA rappers. And so you can see, like, you're also starting a conversation and getting that earned media pickup elsewhere, which is uh, super powerful. Yeah, and I think in this program specifically, it's interesting to see that J.C. Penney's brand was built up. I would say Marvin's brand was built up with some yeah. additional exposure pre-draft. And Bleacher Report is built up just by association with these other two brands as well. So. Well, and also getting to make something that is great. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think, like, at the end of the day, we would love to be a place where athletes who want to express themselves can come to us and we can co-create with them. Yeah. Like, that's just sort of, even from an editorial point of view, something that we're really uh, invested in and believe in. So to get a chance to do that and make money mm -hmm. is uh, was, like, just a fantastic opportunity and glad it worked out so yeah, well. Does the does a program like this give you a closer relationship with some of these athletes that you'll be covering for probably the next decade? Yeah, we um, 
that's a big, big thing for us is, you know, we've had, I think a couple weeks ago, we, or not a couple weeks, that was like Christmas, but right at the end of the year, we did a shoot with Iman Shumpert and we did a shoot with Tim Hardaway Jr. on the Knicks. And both of them posted afterwards about what a great, we didn't ask them to or anything, what a great experience they had with the brand and with Bleacher Report tagging us both. And that's the sort of thing that one, um, makes it a lot easier to go back to their agents who control usually access to a number of different players. Um, so one good experience with one agent or agency gets around really quickly. Uh, I love this idea of these like convergence of, of different worlds and even talking to you about your career going from basketball coach, kind of working the reporting side of it, uh, getting into this branded content space. It's, uh, it's cool to see how that can evolve as well. So for, a uh, we've been talking about like stories a lot here. Do you, okay. I'm going to ask you, we always ask someone's favorite book. I'm going to narrow yours a bit, just given your expertise in the sports world. Mm. Do you have a favorite sports autobiography, biography? One that stands Um, that's a really good one. Uh, the Bill Bradley book that was written, I believe by John McPhee, I want to say that's, uh, it's called uh, A Sense of Where You Are. Is really, really fascinating. It's about his time as, at Princeton as a player and then growing into politics and sort of the idea, which was attracted to me as a high school basketball player, that uh, his sense of where to be on the court and how to move and how to take advantage of uh, maybe not being the most athletic guy, but um, knowing how to move and where to be and being there first kind of was a metaphor for how he moved through his career. Um, then just the writing level is, is really beautiful. And I hope that's the right author or else I'm going to feel like a real idiot. Um, but that's definitely the name of the book. That was like a fascinating read. Well, that's great. Well, Beckley, thanks a lot for your time. Really yeah, appreciate, appreciate having it. you on the show. It was a blast. Thanks, thanks for hanging out. Of course. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. All right. Science of Storytelling is a podcast by Pressboard. It's hosted by Jared Grimm with design by Phil Chung and production by me, Leah Bjornsson. If you like the show, please subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or sign up for our monthly newsletter. Visit PressboardMedia.com to learn more. <laughs>